This is the 50th full-length episode of the Chicago History Podcast and the final episode of Season 2. I'll be taking a short break after this one, but we'll be back in just a few weeks with fresh new content for you. Before we get into this, I want to thank all of you who offered encouragement, sent emails, wrote reviews, used the Buy Me a Coffee link, suggested topics, purchased items through the Amazon affiliate links, followed the show on social media, and told friends about this podcast. Thanks to Dilla for co-hosting the Cicero Riots episode, and to episode guests like John F. Lyons, Dan Goodwin, Amanda Scatisse, Jeffrey Baer, and Eddie Griffin. Most of all, thank you for coming back each week to partake in these Chicago stories. During the break, please have a look through the episode catalog and give a listen to an episode you haven't checked out yet, or write that glowing review you've been putting off. As of this writing, the show has been downloaded in over 1,300 cities in 50 countries and territories around the world, which is kind of bananas. Sincerely, thank you. And now... In time for 1980s summer season, two brand new venues opened within roughly three weeks of each other, giving those who lived in the Chicago area even more options for entertainment in addition to the many of varying sizes they already had. This is the story of 1980, Chicago's Summer of Entertainment. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. I'm going to talk about more than just the summer of 1980 and entertainment here in Chicago, but that summer is really when things went, dare I say, bonkers. In the late 70s, if Chicagoans wanted to see live music, they had the choice of a number of venues, but most of those were either in the city or in smaller clubs that did not attract big performers. Those in the ever-expanding suburbs interested in seeing live entertainment had a choice of either driving into the big, scary city to see a show or not. Granted, there were many places to see live performances that didn't require drivers to parallel park or wonder whether their car would get broken into. Places like the Mill Run Theater in Niles, with a capacity of 1,600, they often attracted a who's who of 70s performers. The Jacksons, Little River Band, Captain and Tennille, Donna Summer, Cool and the Gang, Dolly Parton, the Osmonds, and Ike and Tina Turner, to name a few. The southwest suburbs had the Sabre Room in Hickory Hills with a 1,500 seating capacity, but other than the occasional crooner, we'll get to that in a minute, the Sabre Room of the 70s featured acts like the Sabret Dancers. New York listeners like my friend Alex are thinking, Sabret like the hot dog? No, like Saberette, a glitzy Vegas-style dance group. Uh, Wayne King, the Waltz King, and Liebert Lombardo directing the Guy Lombardo Orchestra. And, in case you're wondering like I was, yes, Liebert Lombardo was Guy Lombardo's younger brother, who appears to have taken over the orchestra after Guy Lombardo's passing in 1977. The North Shore of the late 70s had Ravinia in operation since the early 1900s, 
With its 3,400-seat pavilion area and room for thousands more on the lawn, located in Highland Park, Illinois, about 25 miles north of downtown Chicago, its summer slates of the late 70s were often filled with the sounds of Beethoven and Mahler, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. They would also have the occasional Barry Manilow or Chuck Mangione concert. Even the far west suburb of Bolingbrook had Old Chicago, the indoor amusement park slash shopping center discussed in episode 106 of this podcast. One 1979 ad I found lists Willie Ames, Tommy from TV's Eight is Enough. I was at that show. And Steppenwolf with Dr. Hook. I wonder if they played Born to be Wild. Sure, maybe not the biggest or freshest names, but parking was easy and plentiful. Other large venues in the late 70s included the Maywood Park Racetrack, which hosted shows in warmer weather when there weren't horse races, and Comiskey Park, home of baseball's White Sox, which was the site of numerous shows in the late 70s, including Teddy Pendergrass and Journey with Santana. There were also events at Navy Pier, including Chicago Fest, which started in 1978, with room for 30,000 in the main stage area and smaller stage areas located throughout across a few very sweaty days every summer. The aging International Amphitheater at 42nd and Halstead was still hosting rock shows well into the early 80s, including a show by Prague Rockers Yes in September of 1980 and the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus in November of 1981. Add-in shows at Aragon Ballroom, the Riviera Theater, Park West... Airy Crown Theater, and the countless other mid-sized venues I don't have enough time to get to, it is clear Chicago had plenty of entertainment options in the late 70s into the early 80s. A quick mention of Beginnings Rock Club on Golf Road in Schamburg that brought in some solid talent that will likely get their own episode in the next season of the podcast. Just over the border into Indiana, the Holiday Star Theater in Merrillville, Indiana. Oh, I should also mention, in addition to Ravinia, there was another outdoor music venue within reach of the Chicago area. In 1977, just across state lines to the north in East Troy, Wisconsin, about a 94-mile drive from downtown Chicago, Alpine Valley opened. The original Alpine Valley design featured an outdoor roofed pavilion that could accommodate 5,000 seats under cover and another 10,000 on the grassy area. The promoters at Alpine Valley put together a busy schedule of shows that first season including Hall & Oates, Linda Ronstadt, Harry Chapin, Johnny Cash, Kansas, with Todd Rundgren opening, Sonny and Cher, and even Chicago. How could they? The first performer on their inaugural evening, Boz Skaggs. Find him on Spotify, kids. Lido Shuffle and Lowdown still hold up. With the addition of Alpine Valley to the music landscape, performers had yet another venue option and an outdoor one at that. This also gave those performers a chance to play larger audiences. Even Frank Sinatra signed up to perform two nights at Alpine Valley in August of 1977. 
After playing four nights with Dean Martin at the Sabre Room in southwest suburban Hickory Hills, which, again, had a seating capacity of 1,500 in June of 1977, Sinatra came back to the Midwest to play at Alpine Valley with Milton Berle as his supporting act. Tickets were $12.50 on the lawn, $25 in the covered area. That's close to $55 and $110 in today's money. So you can see how two nights, potentially in front of 30,000 total people, would beat four nights at the Sabre Room in front of 6,000 total people. By the end of the first season at Alpine Valley, management claimed that the season's 36 shows had a total attendance of over 198,000 guests. Sure, many, if not most, of those guests were from Wisconsin, but I'd say a fair number were Flatlanders from Illinois. For those of you who listened to the episode about the short-lived Chicago hockey team, the Chicago Cougars, you know when they were active, they were involved in the proposed construction of a sports stadium in Rosemont, Illinois. In 1973, the financiers behind the Chicago Cougars proposed their new sports stadium be built on a parcel of land in Rosemont, Illinois, just outside the Chicago city limits, near O'Hare Airport. With an anticipated completion date of fall 1975, this new stadium would also host conventions and, you guessed it, music concerts. This, of course, was before a flurry of lawsuits related to the Rosemont Stadium project. Check out that Chicago Cougars episode for all the details that uh, pushed back the expected completion date to sometime in the fall of 1975, then 1976, then 1977. Actually, ground-clearing work on the site finally began in September of 1978. In the summer of 1979, construction on the stadium was moving along at a good pace, with the opening expected later that year. That was until the morning of August 13th, 1979, when during construction of the Rosemont Horizon, the stadium roof collapsed, killing five workers and injuring 16. The stadium was being constructed with hundreds of tons of wood to lessen the noise of aircraft flying overhead. At the site that day were between 50 and 70 workers, 15 of them working on the trust roof, which was supported by one-ton beams 90 feet in length each. There were reports that a plane had passed 100 feet overhead moments before, leading to concerns the vibrations from planes taking off and landing at nearby O'Hare Airport, less than one half mile away, might have weakened the structure, but the Federal Aviation Administration downplayed the possibility that aircraft vibrations played any role in the collapse. Damage from the collapse was estimated at $3 million. That's almost $11 million in today's money. But Rosemont's mayor at the time, Donald Stevens, vowed to rebuild. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, a.k.a. OSHA, later accused five firms of negligence and fines of $62,730, that's about two hundred and thirty grand in today's money, were imposed. Construction resumed in December of that year. 
The venue that would become Poplar Creek was announced in 1978 as a $10 million open-air music arena. Officials of the northwest suburb of Hoffman Estates called out Ravinia directly, saying this new facility would be, quote, along the lines of popular Ravinia, but four times as large, end quote. The original plans called for it to seat 6,100 under covered seating with lawn seating for another 10,000. These numbers would increase. They also expected construction would begin in July of 78 and be completed by May of 1979. While the venue that would become Poplar Creek was about 34 miles from Ravinia, it was only about 16 miles from the Rosemont Horizon. The area on which the venue would be built was on unincorporated land occupied by a cornfield and woods off Northwest Highway and Highways 59 and 72. And one of the developers of the project, the Niederlander Organization, had already filed a petition to annex the land to nearby Hoffman Estates. A little background on the Niederlander organization. They started in 1912 and have owned and managed entertainment venues, heavy on performing arts theaters across the country and in London. Here in present-day Chicago, the Niederlander organization operates the Auditorium Theater, CIBC Theater, the Broadway Playhouse, the Cadillac Palace, and as the name might suggest, the James M. Niederlander Theater. The mayor of Hoffman Estates, Virginia Haterer, was quoted as saying, This will go a long way to filling a void in the northwest suburbs, which I've heard chastised quite frequently as a cultural wasteland. End quote. Hoffman Estates village manager George Longmire was told by the developers the events planned for the arena would include plays and music concerts, but no hard rock. Village officials already expected opposition from Barrington Hills, the affluent suburb to the north of the proposed venue. Robert Niederlander said at the time he believed the Chicago area could support two major summer entertainment complexes, meaning this one and Ravinia. In what must have been irksome, sure, let's go with irksome, to Ravinia, the announcement in the Chicago newspaper went as far as to claim the landscaping and setting of the new music theater would be modeled after Ravinia. There was also a fair amount of talk about how the roads along the Hoffman Estates venue would be able to handle all traffic, something for which Ravinia had long been criticized. Now, I realize I've focused a lot on music in this episode, but one other huge advantage the Rosemont Horizon had over outdoor venues, it was enclosed and could be used all year round. Instead of focusing solely on music, in the early days, the Horizon hosted gymnastics championships with Olympic hopefuls like Kurt Thomas, Bart Connor, and Marsha Frederick. The DePaul Blue Demons basketball team called the arena home until 2017, when a new arena was built near campus. Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus was also an annual show at the Horizon. Chicago Wolves hockey, indoor soccer, arena football, monster truck events, wrestling. Honestly, you'd be hard-pressed to think of something the Rosemont has not hosted. Wait, did, did someone say rodeos? Please. The Rosemont Horizon had those as early as April of 1981.
We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. During the first six months of 1980, the U.S. economy entered the most significant recession since the Great Depression. This was right on the heels of the Iranian Revolution of 1979, which sparked a second round of oil price increases, echoing back to the 1973-74 gas shortages and skyrocketing fuel prices. While the economy here in the States experienced a modest recovery beginning by the summer of 1980, there were concerns by promoters that audiences would not be willing to spend the money on tickets or want to use the gas to get there. The Rosemont Horizon got the jump on the season, hosting Fleetwood Mac for their first musical act on May 15, 1980. A few weeks after that, Papa Creek had its gala opening weekend with John Denver. Fun fact, Bob Seger played at Rosemont Horizon at the end of May of 1980 and came back around to play at Poplar Creek in August of that same year. Let's see Taylor Swift do that. Who am I kidding? Tay Tay can do anything. For a look at the various lineups throughout the summer of 1980, check out the Chicago History Podcast Facebook and Instagram pages. I'll be posting ads from back in the day throughout the week. As temperatures began to fall in the autumn of 1980 and the venues assessed their summer fortunes, one thing was clear. Having numerous venues in a down economy did not keep people home. In a September 1980 article in the Chicago Tribune by Larry Cart, Jerry Mickelson of Jam Productions, the company that booked acts into the Rosemont Horizon that summer, said the arena had two completely sold-out nights that season the two nights Billy Joel played, and three others that came close to selling out, Genesis, Journey, and Jackson Brown. Mickelson went on to say he didn't feel like Poplar Creek affected the Rosemont Horizon much, but did admit there were shows they hoped to book for the Horizon that went to Poplar Creek. Mickelson and his partner, Arnie Granite, resisted the urge to book lesser acts into the horizon just to compete with Poplar Creek, instead choosing to leave the venue dark instead on those nights. Looking at the posted acts of the day, in addition to Billy Joel, Genesis, and Journey, Commodores, Doobie Brothers, and Elton John were at the Rosemont that summer. Most nights were likely a hit. In contrast, Poplar Creek appeared to throw everything they could at the wall to see what stuck. For every successful Blues Brothers show, there was Bob Hope and Barbara Eden. REO Speedwagon, huge in 1980, but also Paul Anka. Tom Petty, but Tom Jones? Don't get me wrong, I like Tom Jones, and my Barbara Eden crush is never-ending, 
But at a new 20,000-plus-seat venue... Papa Creek even had Lawrence Welk the first season. Sadly, I could not find attendance records for that show. Of course, it is altogether possible some of those acts were booked just to placate the pearl-clutching neighbors so fearful of the influence of the music venue in their midst. The Rosemont Horizon took a lot of criticism for their horrible sound and later that year put in sound-absorbing baffles to approve the arena's acoustics. Ravinia's attendance in the summer of 1980 was down overall, but much of that was blamed on rainy weather on key weekends, which limited the number of those willing to sit on the lawn. Fallout from competition from these new venues was expected, although technically in existence until 1999, the International Amphitheater went on life support after 1981. Mill Run Theater Niles, in operation since the mid-60s, closed their doors in 1984. Speaking of 1984, the Rosemont Horizon was in the news in November of 1984, when a campaign rally for Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush was held there just two days before the 1984 presidential election. Much like it happened to Ravinia when Poplar Creek was announced in 1988, South Suburban Tinley Park announced a new music venue was in the works, tentatively called World Music Theater. The following year, in 1989, Retailer Sears announced they were buying the land on which Poplar Creek stood as part of their new suburban headquarters with the understanding that Poplar Creek would continue to be run by the Niederlander organization for the time being. The World Music Theater in Tinley Park opened in June of 1990, going after many of the same acts that would normally be booked into Alpine Valley or Poplar Creek boasting seating for 11,000, including plush skyboxes, with a five-acre lawn that could accommodate 17,000. That's the World Music Theater. By then, Poplar Creek claimed 7,000 in the pavilion and 18,000 on the lawn, and Alpine Valley was still the biggest with 7,500 pavilion seats and 32,500 spots on the lawn. Fun fact, Cher was the first performer at the World Music Theater. In November of 1994, it was announced the Niederlander organization was closing Poplar Creek to join forces with the World Music Center, in which Niederlander would co-own, co-book, and manage the Tinley Park Arena. There was optimism that the move might stabilize concert ticket prices by ending bidding wars between the competing venues for top acts. By the way, I should clarify, it was called the World Music Theater from 1990 to 1995, then became the New World Music Theater until 2001, then the Tweeter Center for five years, first Midwest Bank Amphitheater until 2015, and now, as of this writing, let me check my watch, it goes by the Hollywood Casino Amphitheater. I had to look all those names up. Now, if you've been listening this whole time wondering what happened to the Rosemont Horizon, well, in June of 1999, the Allstate Insurance Company agreed to cough up $1 million a year for naming rights for 10 years. 
That deal appears to have worked out pretty well for both groups as the venue, with a few upgrades over the years, is still known as the Allstate Arena. Poplar Creek closed its doors in 1994 and the land was developed by Sears for their new corporate headquarters. They did build an indoor performance venue called the Sears Center on the land, but other than Duran Duran and Bob Dylan appearing there around its opening in 2006, they have not had many successes and it did not turn a profit in the first six years of operation. Sears eventually gave up the naming rights. It is currently called the Now Center. There was talk of a new outdoor music venue similar to the much-loved Poplar Creek being built about a mile away from where Poplar Creek once stood. But that project has long been stalled. your adventures at some of the venues I mentioned. Leave those stories for me on social media. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions about anything covered today, or of course, anything to add. My email, as always, is chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. The Chicago History Podcast logo was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram, or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. Stay safe until the next episode of Chicago History Podcast. Now that the weather is getting nice, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in. Thanks for listening. <laughs>